Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Book Network. I am Latif Tari, Assistant Professor of History at Elizabeth City State University. Today, I will be interviewing Josh Myers, author of We Are Worth Fighting For, A History of Howard University Student Protest of 1989. Welcome, Josh, to the New Book Network. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So my first question Joshua, explain to the listening audience how you develop this book project and how does your monograph, We Are Worth Fighting For, the student to- student protest taking place at Howard University on the campus in 1989, how does it relate to the current activism we're witnessing in the last fallen weeks? I'm not sure um, how it does. You know, a few people have come up to me to explain or to kind of affirm um, that they saw or see resonances between, you know, what they did in the late 1980s and now. Um, but in terms of the relationship, um, it is most likely uh, more connected to the kind of ongoing struggle, the, the kind of changing saying, if you will, as Amiri Baraka once put it, of, you know, Black resistance to this particular form of oppression and exploitation that has been characteristic of the modern world, you know, for the last, you know, 500 to 600 years. Um, in more narrow scope, I think, perhaps would put the onus on the role of state violence or police violence, uh, which, of course, the students at Howard in the 1980s were thinking about uh, because they came from places like New York, where they had just witnessed, you know, state and vigilante violence, you know, as it applied to, you know, the hip hop generation, and that sort of, um, that sort of anchored how they viewed the police, how they viewed, you know, other agents of the state. Uh, but beyond that, I'm not seeing a whole lot of, you know, one to one. I guess the similarities or uh, similarities in terms of. Um, the kind of direct action and uh, spontaneous protest movements and, um, you know, the Howard University takeover, a more clearer connection probably would be to the, we understand the extent to which this looks like uh, the response to uh, the Rodney King verdict, uh, which also included many of the same people um, that were involved at Howard in 89. And the group uh, Black Neo Force, which was a major engine, perhaps the major engine um, of the protest, the group that was founded by Raz Baraka and a number of other um, Howard students, uh, they were also um, involved in you know the Rodney King issue as well um, a few years later. And so, to me, that would be kind of the ties between you know this moment. I'm in 89 and today. 
Okay. And how did you develop this book project? Um, it's an interesting question. You know, I'm not um not a historian. Um and certainly wouldn't have chosen this book project on my own. The book project actually is a, a product of a collaboration. Um a collaboration between uh, members of Black Near Force, former members of Black Near Force, Makanke um, Washington, Jam Shackley, and April Silver, and myself, um, who have been trying to get this story told, you know, probably for about 20 years. And at some point, um, they decided that perhaps someone who was not there, an outsider, um, if you will, might be the best person to narrate uh, their story. But everything uh, that the book is, everything that the book became, uh, was a product of our collaboration. And my relationship to them um, was not strictly an academic one. It was on a, it was on a communal level. Um, I met Akanke Washington you know, when I lived in Philadelphia, um, working um my graduate school work, but she was, you know, doing community work, and that's how we made a connection. And so, when it came uh, time to do a 25th anniversary of the of the um, protest, she looked to me because I was at Howard to help pull the, pull it together, and that relationship kind of built towards, you know, them trusting me with the story, and you know, they were able to um, kind of shape the narrative because. For me, it was um, really about honoring their voices. And so I tried to write from their perspective. In that sense, it's not the kind of objective history, right? It's really a history from their standpoint. And, um, you know, they provided the outlines. They provided, you know, a sense of what direction the story should go. You know, they introduced me to people that I needed to talk to. It was really... um, more of a collaboration. You know, my name is on the cover, but it's really more of a collaboration between myself and many of the activists who are involved in the protest. Yes. I saw in the back of the book where you did extensive interviews where it appeared to be at least almost 30 or 40 individuals. Are all those individuals a part of Black Neo Force or some of the organizations that were in association with them? The vast majority were Black Neophores, um, but one of the things that's important about this protest, you know, is that they were able to build a coalition um, of, you know, comprised of other organizations. Um, you had the campus NAACP. Uh, you had um, a group by the name of PSM, the Progressive Student Movement, uh, which was led by uh, Paris Lewis, who is now Malik Zulu Shabazz. You had a... Um, collaboration between the Howard University Student Association. Um, And so, you know, from various strands of Black student life at Howard uh, were put together, came together by Black New Force. Um, Black New Force wasn't a popular mass organization, but they were able to, you know, from their base, probably a strong 50 active members, they were able to get 3,000 students over the course of the protest involved. And so, that required a coalition. And so many people that I interviewed were also part of that coalition, even though, even as they weren't necessarily formally members of Black Neo Force. But I would say that, you know, my writing and my perspective was generated strongly from the way that 
uh, people in Black Neo Force, you know, saw this protest. Okay, thank you. I actually want to read a passage um, on page 75, chapter 4, which is called The Force. Force equals mass times acceleration. The word force carries meaning not only in Newtonian physics, but it also carries meaning to our organization and in more ways than one. In physics, force is a vector, which simply means that it has direction as well as magnitude. The magnitude of our force rests in the masses we strive to accelerate, but towards what goal? What is the direction of our particular force? The Freedom Organization for Racial and Cultural Enlightenment accelerates the masses, of which we are an integral part, towards the goal of total freedom from oppression, Black neo-force. That sounds very Afrofuturistic to me, even though this is certainly not within an Afrofuturistic era. Um, defining the student organization Black Neil Force um, today, which was which happened back there in the late nineteen eighties. How did that name actually help to define that group and the thesis of your book? I mean, that's a very interesting question. Um, the naming itself is a very peculiar story that I tell um, in the book. Um, the the organization itself is inspired by the broad range, the broad ideological range of Black politics. And so on the one hand, they're inspired by the Nation of Islam. Um, on the other, they're inspired by the Black Panther Party. And then in the background, you have Malcolm X, you have Martin Luther King, you have almost this entire range. And the, the, one of the key mentors um, of the group was Sonia Sanchez. And so you have the artistic piece as well. And so um, and obviously, Ras Baraka's father, Amir Baraka, and this, and who represents all of this, these strands in his own life. And so, this particular naming um, kind of comes about to reflect all of those different moving parts. Black, of course, was about identity, right? We are black nationalists. We are affirming that you know, black is who we are. Black is beautiful. Black is joyous. Black is everything. And then, of course, to speak to the African and the larger sort of orientation, they chose the Swahili term, um, Nia. So, you know, two of the founding members, uh, Barack Ras Baraka and Carlos Seeley, were also members of Ubiquity Incorporated, which is a group on Howard University's campus, you know, that believed in embodied the Nguzo Saba. And so they, you know, they borrowed from Ubiquity um, and they put Nia in there. And so you have question of a racial identity, but also a cultural identity that's, that's at the foundation. And then you have force. And so the brother um, that came up with the idea for force is really a mysterious figure. I think he, he came to one meeting and he never came back. But the meeting that he came to was the meeting where they were trying to decide on a name. And as Raz Baraka told me, he had this really important um, contribution. He gave a really strong distillation of the meaning of force, kind of what you read. Um, that became part of their document, one of their founding documents. And, you know, force also meant 
that there was a certain kind of aggression. There was a certain kind of, you know, intensity. There was a certain kind of purposeful movement that characterized this organization. They believed in being prepared. They believed in self-defense. They believed in demonstrating to the world that, you know, black people should be self-determinative, self-determining. And that kind of translated into a kind of bravado and aggression, but it was very much disciplined. It was very much, you know, paramilitaristic. And so, you know, those three ideas together, and then you add the acronym, uh, two force, you know, Freedom Organization for Racial and Cultural Enlightenment, it then gives a broader sense of why. You know, why are, you know, we black people coming together for this particular purpose? It is to give a sense of freedom and cultural enlightenment to our back to our people. Um, that's kind of the orientation, you know, that they that they moved with. You know, they would come on campus, you know, with an all black uniform and TAMs and they would drill on the yard and then you know, Raz Baraka would give a speech, you know, in front of Blackburn Center or, or which is the student center on campus or at the flagpole, which is at the middle of, of the yard. And they would then drive people to come to their meetings and they strategically chose their meetings um, on Friday nights at seven o'clock. So to speak to, you know, leisure time has to be, you know, even devoted to movement work. And that's how um, you know, because most people wouldn't give up their Friday nights if you weren't serious, right? And so that kind of disciplined but very forceful um, orientation. Then finally, you know, it emerges as a consequence and in conversation with, you know, hip hop and hip hop's evolution towards what some people call message rap or conscious rap or, you know, however you want to define it, that those two things can't be decoupled as well. And so, that's really where this organization comes from. Okay. I'm going to actually go to question number six that I have written down. And I want you to kind of expand on that. So how did the 1980s in which hip hop was a part of that era in the 1980s and 1990 that was known as the golden age of hip hop? How did the Reagan era and political figures such as Sonia Sanchez, Tony Brown, um, Ron Walters, Jesse Jackson, Minister Farrakhan helped to influence hip hop activism and black student protest culture at, HB, at HBCUs. And particularly, how did they help to influence the Afrocentric movement? Almost all the people that you named were mentors to black New Force. And so either they were mentors they were, or they were connected to them as, um, you know, somehow. Um, so as I said earlier, the, Part of the collaboration was um, the activists gave me an, an outline, and in terms of the context, one of the things that they wanted me to, what they wanted me to really research and uncover, you know, are the three main influences of Black student culture in the 1980s in, t- in terms of politi- politicization. Um, those three um, forms of consciousness raising, if you will. Um, were the anti-apartheid movement, Jesse Jackson's political campaigns, and hip-hop. 
And so hip hop is a major influence. Um, there's a story um, that Jeff Chang told in his book, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, that took place at Howard University in 1987. Um, Conrad Tillard, um, later known as Conrad Muhammad, um, was one of the leaders of an organization called the National Black Student Unity Congress. And they had their second conference at Howard in 87. And it was a major gathering um, because Public Enemy had just, you know, kind of came onto the scene and they were invited to speak on a panel at Howard at this conference. And, you know, Amiri Baraka, Raz's father, basically tells, you know, or basically asserts that Public Enemy um, isn't doing enough in terms of activism. They're not doing enough in terms of organizing. There's this sort of generational debate that's happening. And, you know, Public Enemy defends themselves, of course, but also in the audience was Sister Soja, who defends the, the entire generation. And it's a really important moment, you know, and Shane doesn't talk about this, but Raz Baraka was in the audience. You know, this is before the founding of Black Neo Force, and Raz Baraka is in the audience because at that conference, Public Enemy basically used Raz and his friends as their security for the for the event. And so you can imagine, right, public, as huge as Public Enemy is in, you know, in the fall of 1987, you have Raz there providing security with his friends, and then his father basically critiquing the Public Enemy. You can imagine the reckoning, you know, that they must have felt. Um, and, you know, it was it was soon after um, that Black Neo Force was founded. And so that's just one example of this sort of generational piece and how um, they influenced. Another example um, is Selena Sanchez. You know, I start the book with Selena Sanchez for a reason. She was probably the key influence on many of um, the, the, the leadership of Black Neo Force during the time of the protest. Um, and that would be April Silver. Um, it's very interesting at Howard at the time. You have, you know, the, the son, the children of Amir Baraka. Um, you also have um, the, the the daughter of Tony Cade Bambara. Karma Bambara is there. And you also have um, the children of Sonia Sanchez. And, you know, Marani Sanchez, one of Sonia Sanchez's uh, sons, is actually in a class with April Silver, an English class, and they become close. And through that relationship, Sonia Sanchez began began to come to campus for free, just to sit with students, just to engage students. You know, you know they might have raised money for her transportation, but generally speaking, she didn't charge them. And they actually have these reading circles, and in these reading circles, um, April Silver sort of comes into being, comes into, um, she grows through uh, this relationship. And it was only through Black Neo Force where she would find a place to extend and to continue that growth. And, you know, that's how Fina Sanchez really connects to this particular moment. And she remained a, a stable influence throughout the existence of the organization. Um, even to this day, uh, Sonia Sanchez remains close to many of the people you know, who are involved in, you know, in this work. And, um, you know, the same is true even of, of Louis Farrakhan. Um, in a deeper sense, 
one of the major organizers on Howard's campus before uh, Black Neo Force, before the students of Black, that, make, that created Black Neo Force even got to campus, you know, a brother by the name of Abdul Haq Islam. And Haq was, uh, you know, he was involved in student government. Um, he was involved in uh, some of the major protest activities that occurred, you know, within the Reagan era. And, you know, he is pretty much um, a five percenter, right? He, his, his, his name, um, he was known on campus as, as true mathematics. And then he meets, you know, Minister Farrakhan and he changes his name. And Minister Farrakhan gives him the name Abdul Haq Islam. And um, his work in terms of connecting these student activists to these larger networks um, is really critical. He, for I'll just give you one example, um, maybe two examples. When he left Howard, he went to go work with Kenny Gamble up in Philadelphia. And his work in the music industry really opens the door um, for Howard being a site for trying to make hip-hop music or connect hip-hop music to the political struggle, to political activism, and that manifests into a series of conferences um, in the 90s around hip-hop. You know, and on a smaller level, you know, Kenny Gamble actually gives a political donation to um, April Silver and Raz Baraka uh, when they ran for uh, Howard University Student Association president and vice, pre and vice president. And so these connections generationally through hip-hop, through the Afrocentric movement are very real. And they're very important to unpack and understand the entire era. Thank you. In your book, I did not see where you actually used the word Black internationalism directly. However, there are examples of Black internationalism throughout your book. Would you consider Trans-Africa, the All-African People Revolutionary Party, and the anti-apartheid movement as being Black internationalism for those students, even though they did not use that type of language, nor did they frame it that way. Why was it important for those students to embrace the global Black struggle and connect it to their national and local Black activism on their campuses and community? It was really just in the soil at Howard. I think even thinking about this, I go back to the 60s and the 70s, where Howard is the center, Washington, D.C., really, is the center for a lot of the Southern African movements, for understanding the Southern African movements in the, the entire country. And so the, it was almost unavoidable to be a Pan-Africanist. Um, I think about this interview that, you know, Christopher Cathcart gives, Christopher Cathcart and Manati Jenkins, who were student leaders. Um, but they were trained by Howard Newell, who was actually cadre of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. These are all Howard students, right? And there's this interview in the Hilltop, the student newspaper, where they are being vetted, if you will, um, for, for, for um, student government. And they asked them, well, what's your identity? And Manati and Chris say, we're Pan-Africanists. That's, that's our identity. We're Pan-Africanists. So this is like 1983-84, and what ends up happening, you know, throughout the decades, especially when, you know, white students get involved in the anti-apartheid movement, 
is that this becomes a national issue on campus. But for Black people, especially for Black people at Howard, this has always always been a thing. Um, and so, you know, you have people from the, the Pan-Africanist Congress on a faculty at Howard. I mean, you have the Black consciousness movement sending students to Howard. And so this sort of notion of a Pan-African consciousness was unavoidable. You know, there's this interesting uh, story, uh, which I tried to get more information on, but, you know, a lot of people didn't want to talk about it. Um, in 1985 or 86, I think it was, um, Howard University Student Association actually sends a delegation to an international student conference. But the problem was they had to sneak and go because this international student conference was being held in Libya. And Libya was the, one of the enemies of the United States of America at the time. And so if you can imagine, you know, the controversy of, you know, these, these Howard students going to that conference, um, it was it was a it was a striking time. Um, you know, students were willing to make those kinds of connections and sort of translate that into, you know, the struggles on the street. Anti-apartheid was, you know, a part of the consciousness of Black students and how they came to understand themselves. This was a question of African identity and the the obvious connections between you know settler colonialism in the United States and settler colonialism. You know, South Africa, between Jim Crow and apartheid, between, I mean, there are very, the violence against youth, police brutality, all of those things provided clear examples of common struggle. And it was, they were able to use those experiences as well as the the, the attention given uh, to um, Africa to be able to make these connections in very real ways. And this, um, of course, precedes, but is energized. Uh, by the cultural nationalist movement towards Afrocentricity that's happening at the same time. So really interesting moment. In the book, you didn't necessarily point out maybe gender conflict, but one of the things that we do see is that the personality of April Civil is actually defined by her being a Black woman who takes leadership in Black Neil Force after Ross Baraka. Could you explain some of the personality traits of April Silver? Yeah, I mean, it's there, there, was, there was absolutely gender conflict, and there's going to be gender conflict any time you have people who grew, up, who grew up in patriarchal societies. But I think the difference is that Black Neo Force was very intentional about dealing with them within the context of the organization, within the context of the normal functioning, if you will, of the work. And they weren't always successful, but the importance is that they were aware and they made concerted efforts uh, to deal with it. You know, and so there's two, sto- there's two sides to the story of April's emergence. So one side is, you know, she is a quiet figure. She is una- not unassuming. She is, she is not as, um, I want to, I wouldn't use the word charismatic. Um, maybe a better word is not as brash as Raz was. And that sort of intentionality of Raz stepping down, probably because he didn't want the organization to be identified with him, was a way for the organization you know, to grow. But people didn't know April. People in the organization were confused about why she had been nominated. But behind the scenes, she had been working not to sort of 
curry favor with the group, but she believed so strongly in the group that she did extra legwork of promoting the group and organizing on behalf of the group. You know, so that's one side of the story. The other side of the story was that, you know, there were some whisperings that perhaps she was being set up to take the fall. Um, and so regardless of which version of that is true, the reality is ancestors were looking out, you know, because April had the correct, she had the right spirit in terms of how to navigate the protests. You know, people who were like Raz probably wouldn't wouldn't be able to accomplish what April uh, did, for instance, at the negotiating table, right? And so her calm demeanor was really important for the organization. It was fortuitous that she was involved. Um, well, she was nominated as president and became president um, at the time that she did, which was, you know, mere months before the protest actually happened. And it ends up working out because she had this, she had a certain character that you know allowed for different responses to, uh, that the administration had towards the students. Talk a little bit about the climax of your book. What is the defining moment for Black Neil Force and the activism that occurred at Howard University in 1989? What was that defining event? Um, they would likely say, you know, the Tuesday morning siege, um, led by, um, I guess we would call them, you know, the SWAT team, the DC's version, DC police's version of a SWAT team. Um, that probably was the climax. You know, I spent a lot of time talking about that moment, trying to unpack that moment. Um, you know, they take over the A building Monday morning. By Tuesday morning, you know, all negotiations to get them to leave had failed, including a court order. And so, you know, the, the police were called in. And there's a lot of controversy, controversy about who um, called the police, but it's likely um, that the president, James Cheek, uh, was the person that called the police. And the police used force. Um, ironically, I guess, <laughs> they used force to reach the uh, building. Uh, they came in from three different locations. Two to three locations were breached. Um, and the final location was defended um, by a group of large <laughs> black men who were, most of whom were from, were linemen on the football team who put their bodies between the protesters, about a thousand protesters and about a hundred police officers, hundred police officers in full riot gear. Um, and by putting their bodies on the line, they prevented um, a, a greater catastrophe from occurring. If you talk to many of the students that were in the building, you know, the police had this sort of intention that, you know, they were coming to do harm. They weren't just coming to drag them out lifeless, their, drag their lifeless bodies out. They were coming to do harm. Um, the Howard students were seen by the police as entitled, and you know, the the, the students felt um, that you know this was going to be another Kent State. Um, these were students that were also made conscious, you know, by the move bombing, you know, a few years prior, and so um, 
only reason, perhaps one of the major reasons, and a lot of the students, former students cited this, um, that the police weren't able to come in was because of Marion Barry, who shows up on the scene and orders them to stand down. Apparently, the chain of command, there were some loopholes, and Marion Barry did not know, was not informed, was not alerted that the police uh, were being called in to eject the students. As soon as he found out, he made a beeline to campus, and he came in literally at the nick of time uh, because the students were holding up the door and the police were using, you know, an electric battering ram to break down the door. Um, so a lot of the students talked about how the door, by the time they, you know, left, was almost cut in half um, by, the, by the police officer's equipment. And Marion Barry shows up right in the nick of time, and he calls them off. And he basically says, you can't do that to these students, right? And, of course, Marion Barry's own activist history probably had a lot to do with why he decided that violence or a violent injection of the students wasn't the right way to go. And in many ways, um, you know, a lot of the students said without, without, you know, hyperbole, you know, that Marion Barry saved us. You know, they could hear him from inside calling the, calling the police office. And, you know, when he did that, he stayed with the students the rest of the day um, to help them figure out a, the best way to go forward. And so if you got the mayor of the city on your side, um, that, gave, that gave them, obviously, a lot of leverage in terms of negotiating. And um, not only was the mayor on their side, but the Wasser Fontroy was on their side. Um, you know, the former uh, leader within SCLC um, and the uh, congressperson from D.C., Jesse Jackson shows up the next day and he's on their side. And so you have these national figures, of course, Langa Sanchez. You have these national figures who are taking the side of the, of the students, and the university really has no choice um, but to, to, at least on paper, accede to their demands. Okay, you stated earlier that you are not a historian, but the canon of your work, um, which other historians such as Ibram Kendi, The Black Campus Movement, which is his book, Martha Biandi, the Black Revolution on Campus, and Richard D. Benson II, Malcolm X, and the Radicalization of the Black Student Movement, 1960 to 1973. How does your work fit into those scholars, their scholarship, I mean? Um, that's, not some, that's not something I've ever thought about. Um, and so I'll kind of think on the fly here. Um, clearly, um, you know, Rich Benson's work tells stories that don't necessarily fit into the notion that Black folk were involved in making the academy more diverse, um, which I think is the rub in many ways of some of the other texts in this era, in this area. Um, but by talking about a Black institution, I think Benson's work is closer to what I what I will try to under, try to understand because at the end of the day, this particular protest is in the it's in a in ter- there's an internal legacy, there's an internal tradition in terms of black institution building that this protest is a part of. Um, the idea of what a black university is, what a black university can be, um, 
is a conversation that Black people are having with themselves um, before the advent of uh, integration. And in 89, that's the conversation that the students are having again with the university. You know, who are we and who, what kind of university do we want to be? What does it mean to be Black in these spaces? And so there's, there's really a, an evolution, I think, between my work and the work of um, scholars dealing with not just Malcolm X LaBrice University, but maybe Derek White's work uh, dealing with the Institute of the Black World and um, people like Vincent Harding and Stephen Henderson and others. Um, and of course, um, there's some forthcoming work um, that deals with the HBCU um, some work coming out on Tuskegee that's going to be very interesting. Um, then, of course, probably Jelani Favors, no, really, Jelani Favors' book, uh, Shelter in the Time of Storm, which also tries to kind of give a collective uh, portrait of this conversation around a Black university. Um, he goes back to the 19th century and brings it all the way forward, looking at you know particular snapshots of activities at HBCUs. And what I like about you know, Janani's book is he's not talking about the, you know, the HBCUs we always talk about. He's talking about Tougaloo and Jackson State. You know, he's talking about Cheney. He's talking about, you know, these HBCUs that we have to we have to understand too when it comes to this legacy of defining the black university. In the conclusion of this interview, why would you suggest someone read your book and where can they purchase your book? Um, <laughs> I think you should read the book if you're interested in the 80s. I think that's the thing that you know is going to be increasingly um, a major, major area of inquiry for a lot of scholars. When I was writing the book, I was struck by how much the architecture of neoliberalism was actually founded in this particular moment. And I think it helps us understand not just, you know, the society that we inhabit today. It helps us understand the higher education landscape. You know, Black students resisted this move towards this kind of neoliberalization of higher education that we're all facing today. Black students resisted it at, at the foundation of it. And I think that's important because it connects the thread, like I was saying earlier, this conversation about what a Black university is, which we often situate in the 1960s, but it connects that thread to the 1980s as well. I think that might be the major um, rationale for why someone should read this book. You know, it tells a story of a unique time period. It tells a story about how Black students kind of inhabited that unique time period in a very particular way. Um, my hope for the book is that it would um, lead to more work on, you know, Generation X and their role in Black movement movement building. Um, I was struck by there not being a single author book on the role of Black youth, you know, in the 1980s and early 1990s. Um, not a single author history. There are some books there's some political studies. And I was struck by that. And I think that's something that you know, I hope future scholars work on. Um, my book is available from a number of places. I've been encouraging 
uh, people to get uh, my book from uh, Sankofa, a bookstore in D.C., which now has an online presence. And that will be my top place uh, to get it. But it's also available wherever books are sold. NYU Press, my press, has recently uh, placed a book within its uh, Black Lives Matter um, series of discounted books in the wake of the uh, protest. And so I think now um, there's a discount of 40% um, off of the book um, at NYU Press. And so those would be the two places that I would recommend our folks get the book. We are worth fighting for a history of the Howard University student protest of 1989 by Josh M. Myers. On behalf of the New Books Network, Joshua Myers, I say thank you and goodbye.